expecting uh it to go this quickly glad that uh we're we're having actually a lot to cover uh which is a good thing for imx but how are you doing today rubik good mate good no i can't believe it's episode number 10 10 already and i'm very excited for this interview today um we have uh under the radar i believe game that's going going to be not under the radar when it comes out so looking forward to this one yeah, how about you go ahead and introduce our, our, our special guest for this week? Cool. Uh, meeting, we're talking with Dogberto or Lachlan, a uh, fellow Australian by the sound of the accent. Um, so, and we're, yeah, so do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. Uh, so you are correct. I am a fellow Australian. Um, I'm also the, the CEO of our studio, Minted Loot. Um, and uh, yeah, it was uh, originally based out of Sydney, now uh, just kicking around on the, the East Coast, very bizarrely on a farm, uh, which is the strangest place to be developing a blockchain game from, but uh, that's, uh, that's where my in-laws are and we're, we've got a little one. So we're, we're sort of an international organization. Uh, we've got folks in the UK, a huge number of people in Malaysia and Indonesia working on the game, a couple in the US. Um, and uh, yeah, it's a, it's a real mixed bag team. We've got folks like myself with an AI engineering background. We've got lots of traditional game developers, um, other folks from AR and VR uh, side of things. Um, and yeah, really sort of fun international team. And uh, we're developing Chrono Forge, which uh, has that same sort of fun international vibe. I think you'll find uh, pretty different in terms of style, um, visually and, and story and stuff to what else is on the market. And uh, yeah, really excited to be on the show and to chat to you guys today. Awesome. Yeah, it's great to have you here. Um, love to see projects that are, are coming to, to IMX that are building, especially during this hard time in the, in the bear market and really just pushing to put out a, a quality game. Um, so why don't we dive right into it a little bit? Um, tell us a little what's bit the, about... Sorry, go ahead. I was going to ask, what's the size? How, how many people are working on the game? Is, how big is the team? Uh, so we've got uh, around 15 full-timers uh, and a roster of uh, sort of 10 part-timers at any one time. So, you know, you have like your, your core artists, your core programmers, your designers. Um, and then depending on where, what we're doing, we have like additional contractors that will come in and, and focus on like a bulk of character art or a VFX specialist if we're really trying to get something down. Um, we have like some environment art contractors we brought in temporarily at the moment to focus on the overworld because that's a really big piece and just need more labor. Um, so it ends up being like sort of 25 people working on any given day of which, you know, probably 15 of those people are, are consistent throughout the whole lifespan of game development. And uh, the rest sort of come and go as we, we need different specialists over different points in time in the process. Mm. Awesome. Cool. So um, yep. back back to I guess the 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 first diving question, um, you know, what what is your inspiration for the project, or and some of your influences for the for the game? 
So um, yeah, the the, the co-founder um, Rudy and, and myself, um, we were both sort of big fans of um, WoW and League of Legends and Dota and that sort of stylized uh, action role-playing combat um, and, and art style um, when we were younger and, and continue to play those games, uh, but have you know matured like many and you know got busy jobs and small kids. And found that that uh, that genre and that style has started to fade away in recent years. What you have are sort of massive MMOs that expect you to play, you know, more than 100 hours intensively. You're logging on every day for significant hours to progress and be part of that. Um, and the styles also turn very macabre and dark, right? So if you look at um, Baldur's Gate, for example, or Diablo, you know, we, we're seeing particularly recent action RPG titles. Um, in the fantasy space. They're all very, very dark in their theme. So for us, we we kind of wanted to get away from the darkness and, you know, build a game that's for sort of for people like us. You know, they they maybe were a big WoW fanatic back in the day. They don't have time for a truly massive experience. They don't have time for like 100 hours of intensive playthrough. But they want to hop in every week, you know, play for an hour, maybe two, um, do some raids, do a bit of harvesting, have a good social experience. And they want to do that in a generally sort of positive atmosphere, right? Because these are slightly dark times, let's say globally, the economy is a bit down, there's the threat of like international conflict, all those kind of things. So instead of going for a very, very dark, you know, demon-filled, you know, <laughs> ash-covered world, uh, we have gone for a much more poppier, I sometimes call it a Zootopia sort of style or cast of characters. We've got these um, fuzzy playable characters, all kinds of creatures in very poppy, bright colors. And in that hand-textured art style, um, that uh, hasn't been seen as much. You know, a lot of games going full realism these days. We're coming back that other way. It's not really anime. It's more if you, you know, if you decided to build WoW today and you started with today's technologies, what would that look like? A sort of crisper version of that poppy stylized art. That's that's what we're going for. And if you have a look at our website and look at some of the art on there, you can see, you know, how rich we've got like bright colored jungles and um, sort of snowy peaks with glowing minerals and, and that side of, um, yeah, just happy sort of time to your day. If you can only got an hour or two to play between busy things, we want it to be just positive. Like it's it's fine to have a, an action RPG game, but it doesn't have to be dark all the time, I guess is what we're going for. So that was, that was like our core inspiration. And then we looked at games like V Rising that were very successful in mixing genres. You know, they've got a bit of building in there. Um, they have the traditional action RPG gameplay. Uh, and folks are sort of embracing these genre mashups. Uh, so we're so, sort of playing in a similar space. We have a mashup of dungeon crawling action RPG combat and also a strategic level competition and dilemma that's happening between the players um, with basically all the player settlements are um, buying for power and have the potential to wipe each other out. Uh, a la sort of Ashes of Creation, folks who are fans of that uh, game in development, where there's real consequences and a real strategic overlay to uh, the smaller action RPG world that you you take part in day to day, um, yeah. So <laughs> that's the slightly long winded <laughs> inspiration. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. Um, yeah, like, I'm going to be honest with you. I've been following your game back when it was called PX Quest, and I I was not very impressed with you know with what was coming out. That wasn't going to be my thing. And then I just sort of like didn't disconnect or anything, but just stopped really following you guys um, because that's just not my style of game. The, look like a turn-based kind of strategy game, you know, very pixelated. And then all of a sudden, just a couple of months ago, I just come across, you know, just did a, did a little check out of you guys and saw this Chrono Forge rebrand, this this art style that you're talking about. It's 
absolutely up there with the best that's coming out in Web3, in my opinion. Um, so yeah, now I'm starting to find out about all these core game lips. Like, is it is what? A, like, is there a, a quick rundown of the core game lips? Is there more than one? Is it you know was? And also, can you talk about PX Quest and how that? What the story was behind that? And if I'm if I'm wrong, or if I just had wrong information? Yeah, sure. So yeah, let's let's start with the origin story. So um, originally, myself and um, Rudy, the two the two early founders, we. Um, wanted to actually do an art style quite like what we have now for the game as our NFT art. Um, and what happened was the meta for NFT at that time was all pixel. This is back when we launched in you know, January um, last year. And uh, we got a marketing guy in and he was very heavy on, you just got to go for the meta for your initial launch collection. So we, we compromised a bit there and we did this like heavy pixel art retro style, but wanting to make a game that was actually <laughs> in a different style um, that was 3D, uh, and that was this nice, like, hand-painted, stylized look. Um, so that was really a clash between sort of the, the demands or the fad of the market and knowing that we needed to pander to that. And we had actually tried um, getting the project going under a different face. We used a brand called Minted Minions initially, which was this, like, very high fantasy, um, very hand-painted, high-quality art. And actually, we weren't getting traction with the high-quality art, which was bizarre, but it was just down to... You know, folks at the time, other projects wouldn't promote you if you weren't playing into this meta. So we kind of had to play the game. We, we just accepted like, okay, new faces, new project. We, we sort of just have to play this game and, and go with the meta for now. Uh, and then we did a sort of reveal a couple of months later, which some people actually really disliked and, and a lot of people loved. But you know, some people joined thinking they're getting a pixel project. And then we said, hey, actually, it's this big 3D, you know, really high stylized thing. Um, most people liked it. Some people didn't like it. Those that were really hard into the retro style. Um, okay. and so, so, yeah, it was sort of like the would... plan from the get go, but we had to put on this slightly different face for, for marketing initially. So you weren't planning to do a game in the pixel style. It was always planned to be the, what, what you developed. Yes. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, okay. we recognize that pixel style can only take you so far. Like you're unlikely to become like a double A studio if you're trying to push, you know, a pixel turn-based, you know, very static style of combat. And and the market's saturated with that very quickly, right? Because it's it's easy to develop those kind of games. It's cheap. And so a lot of these early Web3 projects did a lot of these very underwhelming pixel-based sort of turn-based dungeon crawler things. And, and so I think it was definitely the right call for us to um, basically spend all of our project money on the project. Like not every project does that. <laughs> a lot of projects, you know, the founders walked away with a million or half a million dollars. We didn't. We just put the money into development, and we're we're kind of risking it all. We're we're spending every dollar on this game um, to push the quality to try to basically leapfrog into a, a double A studio status. So, what other game? Loops? Sorry, I I um asked three questions in one. No, there, go ahead. And I'll let you go. Yeah, I'll let, yeah. You yeah so, game loop. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I I guess there's there's three fundamental games within the game so there's a traditional dungeon crawler it's you know team-based uh it's sort of optimized for five man but you can play as solo you can go up to at least 10 we're trying to push up and see if we can get to 15 man dungeons as well those are um randomly generated so the structure changes every time you play and the enemies and and that shuffle around um so uh, there's a couple of different like dungeons you go to in different biomes uh, and so that's that's pretty familiar to most people. And there's 12 different classes to that. And so you have the traditional 
grind the dungeon, get better gear, with the better gear can do the next tier of difficulty in the dungeon. Uh, we try to make it feel like less of a grind by randomizing, but also our enemies are pretty smart. They don't just have like one or two attacks. They have at least three special attacks. They're quite intelligent in their strategies and you have to play quite differently depending on the mix of enemies in front of you. Um, so it's a bit of a thinking man's sort of hack and slash. That's, that's one loop. Uh, the second loop is the, the overworld sort of harvesting piece. So instead of um, the very passive style of harvesting that's quite common um, these days, particularly in the Web3 space, our harvesting's quite dynamic. So we have mini games for like hunting. If you want to go kill a boar in the overworld, you actually have to like chase that thing around. It runs away from you. If you want to go fishing, you know, you have to juggle this little meter to kind of catch the fish. If you want to mine or chop down wood, there's a skill to doing that well and getting bonuses and doing that efficiently. So it's not like a um, set and forget style of harvesting. It's a lot more fun to that. Um, and then the, the third part of the loop is this strategic overlay, um, which is the, the flying settlements called trading companies that actually govern this world. So uh, there are 12 different trading companies and rather than, um, you know, have these uh, just be like settlements on the ground that are all run by NPCs, these 12 trading companies are actually governed by the players. And week to week, the players engage in governance, which has real world impacts. So you vote weekly um, on whether you want your settlement to attack another settlement with their weaponry, um, whether you're going to turn on your Chrono Forge, which opens up access to new areas, and allows you to um, smelt uh, the highest tier gear. Um, and there's some complexity, some secretness to that that we're keeping under wraps, but there's also ways that your decisions can go massively wrong on a sort of global scale. So um, you're basically going to have to strategize uh, at this global level about how you're dealing with the other settlements. Are they a threat to you? Should you focus on you know, upgrading your gear and your infrastructure this turn? Or should you be this week just taking out one of those competitors before they take you out? So we introduce these dilemmas and they're ones that the community for each settlement is going to wrestle over. They're going to debate. They're going to end up voting. Um, and that's sort of week to week, this spectacle um, with, a, with a dramatic outcome, I'll, I'll just say. Um, based on uh, what different settlements choose to do and, and um, yeah, how the, the players vote. Awesome. Oh. Um, that sounds really interesting, doesn't it? This is... Yeah, that, I mean, that's, uh, <laughs> that's pretty intricate, uh, to say the least. But I, I think one of the, one of the most important questions of, of this is, is how's the development coming and is the game playable yet? Yeah, so... We've been trying to push out a, um, a playable um, build sort of this week or next week. Um, we, we're still wrestling with some of the server management to make sure we've, we've got really good latency for folks um, globally. Uh, but uh, we're pretty close to the first playtest, so that'll be this month. Um, and then we're still looking for a launch sometime in Q4. As you know, with game development, you never want to put a hard date until you're really, really confident. Uh, but probably Q4 this year, um, we will get there. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's been going pretty well. So we're we're through most of our dungeon development. We've got a, a little bit to go in the overworld. We're almost through all the character development. So uh, all the different armor sets. And there's a lot of gear in this game. So we released an NFT collection with a lot of variety, and then we committed to representing every NFT with every piece of gear in 3D in the game, which, you know, in retrospect might have been a little, little too much, but it does mean that there's a hell of a lot of interesting gear and we had to model all that. So that's taken a long time, but we're almost there. 
Um, so you will find there's just a hell of a lot of cosmetic value as you go through the game and you can you can dress up in all kinds of cool stuff for your character and, and unlock all kinds of cool gear. Well, at the end of the day, that's that's what's making each character unique and, and allowing each person to be able to have something that's uh, unique to them or tradable to someone else. Right. So that's a big part of the player economy and stuff like that. So really good. Yeah, for sure. You, really good on you guys for taking the time to keep good on, <laughs> on that. Um you know, a, a lot of times, unfortunately, we see in, in Web3 is uh, not being able to deliver on the promises made, right? So um, it's, it's, yeah, that's true. It's, it's and, and like, it's refreshing, right? see, it's refreshing to see a team be able to, to go out and actually uh, hit those marks and, and be able to do something. And it, it's a testament to, you know, hopefully the, the quality of, of the game that we're going to be able to see here. So, excited for that yeah for sure is there any risk of the you know in terms of runway of getting the game out is like we're seeing a lot of that happen recently like a lot of games that you know sold millions of dollars worth of stuff Mm. nearly ready for release and they just don't have the runway to get to the end how how are you guys standing in 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 that space in that space look it's it's tight but we're we're good um we we got fixed price on any of the contractors we're using we we know our like general like basically any 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 heavy cost has been fixed price um contracted beforehand so we we partnered with a a studio in malaysia doing a lot of the art costs and the programming cost uh, that's all fixed price and they've been delivering so um yeah we we know we know we know what we can get done we know the features that uh, are coming through and it's it's everything that we promised from launch we're not compromising on anything there where we did compromise is um you know folks like myself a founder of the project I've actually taken zero dollars from the project. So I've been working for a year and a half just on making sure this is everything we promised. Um, wow. And uh, in particular, just making sure that it's a great game because uh, as I said, like we didn't, we didn't want to just like do a project, take some money, you know, make a small game and leave. No, this is our stepping stone to being a double A. And so we have one choice and that is to make a fantastic game that people love, that makes a lot of revenue, that lets us grow, lets us make more titles, more expansions. So uh, yeah, we're, we're, I'm absolutely risking it all on this one. And that I think should give people confidence of just in how much focus on quality and the game genuinely having growth prospects and, and being a quality experience. Um, yeah, and, and just like on um, on that, that that sort of theme of folks cutting corners um, <laughs> and other projects, um, a lot of it comes down to often like variety. They'll cut back on the character differences uh, we're a little bit crazy and we are following through. We've got 12 different classes, 12 different races. There are skill trees for each of those classes. Um, so there's a lot of a lot of effort going into that. Um, but I think the market's going to reward us for that. The fact that we're Web2 accessible, we're on the Epic Games Store. Uh, you don't need to have crypto if you want to start playing. You can just play with Fiat and with a server-based uh, character if you want. I think that's all really important. And for those projects that, that didn't focus on that early on, we focused on Web2 accessibility and explicitly said from the beginning, we're trying to take Web2 gamers, not just Web3 gamers. For those that didn't, I, I just can't see how they're going to survive long-term, particularly if you've got you know a continued bear market. Whereas for us, there's a very serious prospect of just a decent number of people coming in and paying fiat as well to play. So um, we, have, we have a better, I think, um, chance of uh, surviving any downturn and actually growing uh, just off the back of a larger volume of Web2 gamers. Yeah, a thousand percent. Because you look at the the environment of of Web three gamers right now, it's the same ten thousand wallets connecting to every freaking game. So um, <laughs> you can't you cannot do 
uh, something based off of a, a market that's that small. So um, it's great, you know, being able to see the have the vision to say, hey, you know, we need to be a game first and and really get that um, under wraps. Otherwise, um, you're fighting you a, a for game? That, that small share. Sorry. Have you have you run a game studio or another company before? You just seem to say, like have a lot of experience with how to get this done right from this <laughs> chat. Yeah, so um, I, I run a few different big tech things before, but not gaming specifically, which is a bit odd, I guess, for someone starting a game studio. So I um, ran an AI consultancy. I was one of the partners in a big, uh, not big, medium-sized AI consultancy uh, before doing this, um, mainly servicing sort of government customers. Um, I did lead some big AI projects in government before breaking out and doing the consulting piece as well. So I'm used to running sort of multi-disciplinary teams, multi-million dollar budgets, just like getting product management and project management right um, and running, you know, business administration and hiring right. At least I've experienced doing that. Uh, My co-founder Rudy is sort of a similar background. uh, And then, you know, we just play a lot of games. Um, and then fortunately, you know, we've, we've had the, the wherewithal to go find folks who know more than we do about the traditional game development. So, you know, we have, we've gone and hired game designers and lead artists and um, good programmers to, to help make sure that, you know, we're not just bluffing our way through the, the, core, the core piece of game development. You can't, you can't do that all on your own. You can't learn that all on the fly. But um, yeah, I, I, I think uh, we've learned a lot during the experience, but uh, I'm, I'm sort of used to that. I was self-taught as an AI engineer. I didn't actually, you know, go and get a PhD in that. I just learned programming and eventually AI programming over sort of a 10-year period. Um, and that's sort of how I've approached game development as well. You know, we, I used to mod games a bit as a kid and then that sort of continued. And then by the time we get to this process, um, you know, we, we ask a lot of questions of the people we work with. We learned more about the 3D art development pipeline, what to expect from roles, what are good rates in different geographies, um, you learn about programming in Unreal Engine. You learn about the best way to host those things. Um, you just have to be super proactive. But you know, not necessarily every team that um, stood up a Web3 project were enterprise professionals previously. And I think that maybe shows just lacking that discipline, some of that basic like project management, budget management, hiring experience matters. Um, and that's maybe it's maybe where we've got a strength. Like we, we're not... A, a team of game developers by founding, but we are a team of people that have run tech projects and, and ultimately gaming's a bit of both, right? It's a bit of artistic flair and vision, but also these days it's a bit of a tech project because of how many different skill sets come in um, and just how big and complex they get. Yeah, absolutely. So, so far, um, what, what's your experience been like uh, building with Immutable and, and, uh, basically, yeah. their your experience with the with the uh, stack over there. Yeah, sure. So um, I might mention just like why we chose Immutable because <laughs> that was a question that came up a lot. Um, so we we recognize that you know mainstream gamers, uh, Web two gamers coming in uh, are not going to want to have to deal with the complexities of gas in particular, and probably the biggest blocker to onboarding Web two users in our view was just having to find exchanges to get a currency, to then be able to mint your first, you know, NFT character item. Uh, and so the fact that, you know, with Immutable X, folks do not have to think about an exchange. They just basically create a wallet. They can create an email-based wallet. So we're, we're using, you know, the link-based SDK to just create email-based wallet for a Web2 user. They don't have to think about managing that. Uh, they just use their email. 
And then tokens, um, you know, NFTs just get dropped to them during gameplay and there's no additional barrier. Um, so that gasless experience, that free minting experience was why I actually couldn't see any other layer two solution that would work for us. Uh, like Polygon, a lot of people said, hey, get on Polygon, but your, your, uh, your gamers have to go and learn how to get Holdomatic. They have to understand how that system works. Um, and that was just too big of a barrier um, in our mind, looking, especially as like how many exchanges are, are in trouble uh, and looking rocky, whereas if people don't even have to think about an exchange, if it's just here's a token, you manage it with your email address, great. That was that was the kind of smooth experience that we felt, felt was critical to actually hit scale of user onboarding. Um, and yeah, our experience has been good. Um, I think the Docker early on uh, was a bit rusty. It's still a little bit rusty. We're always like spamming the dev team. We have uh, probably a good good relationship with them now. They, they're a little too familiar with us because we, we do come back a lot and we do um, sort of rigorously point out any time the Docker is wrong or a bit short uh, as we recognize that it's not just for us, but like getting more developers on is critical to the health of the ecosystem. Um, so I think it's getting better. And I think the passport, um, release of passport is going to help a lot. Um, that certainly, certainly speeds things up. And um, having a ZK EVM, which um, we're not using yet, but we might use in the future for a, a sort of extended staking system. Yeah, there's, there's a, a little bit of a, Alpha, I believe uh, there will also be a way to stay gas-free for users potentially with ZKVM as well. So um, if that's one of the barriers, maybe that that could be happening in the future. So stay tuned to that. Yeah, that's some news. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that, that is some news. There is some proper alpha. I was not aware of that one. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so I, so I, I, the next question was going to be what tools are you using, but you kind of went over it um, with, you know, saying that you're using the passport, which is a great idea. Um, it's, you know, for me personally, I think that um, the the Web2 gamer that is already so used to having um, like a 2, 2FA set up with their, their email address and everything so that they have a way um, to recover their accounts that way as well. So just being able to track your NFTs and your, your coins or assets that way, uh, just with your email is, is huge. Yeah, for sure. And, and I think also just like, you can't underestimate the importance of gasless because it means for a new player coming in, they're not spending anything to start playing. You, we, uh, at least like, you might want to gate your game that way. So we we might have like a $20 pass for non-NFT holders before they can start producing NFTs. That stops rampant farming uh, and uh, other inflationary issues. But um, you at least don't have to, yeah, just learn anything about crypto to start benefiting from your gameplay achievements. They just drop in your in your wallet just like they would drop in your your normal inventory in game. I think that that piece is key and it's one that sometimes gets overlooked when people hype about other chains. Cool. So you're going to use a, a different type of authentication system at the start that's called Link or something, but in the future you might be changing to Passport when it when it's available? Yeah, so um, Link SDK was actually um, sort of Immutable's equivalent of Passport before Passport, so it's a little bit more basic. Um, but we built our own system, which um, it just was a nice connection from Unreal to um to link um, with a, just a simple sort of page where you jump on the page, you link your wallet once, um, and then then it's done. Uh, and you can add multiple wallets to your your game account, so you can have 
because uh, we, we know a lot of people often have two to three wallets. So we let you link two to three wallets to the one game account so you can share characters across those those couple of wallets um, and share items and, and get utility from all of them together. Uh, and that was that was just a bit easier to do initially with Link. And then Passport came out later. So we, we actually did most of the blockchain development 12 months ago. We, we built really all the complex blockchain stuff up front. Um, because my myself and like the next senior hire were both sort of blockchain-y experienced folks. Um, so we were very strong in that area. We got that stuff down pat quickly. Uh, and then, yeah, the, the slow stuff is, you know, mostly now art, <laughs> game development art um, and uh, tweaking, you know, combat for different classes and, and making that feel good and look good. Um, that ends up being the slowest part of game development, actually. Yeah. So I so, think the next question I want to I want to deliver I want to hear this one though. No one has able has been able to say anything bad about IMX yet. So let's have you be the first. What's the hardest part <laughs> with IMX? Uh, look, I I do think there's a hole there with the then they're not being like a strong first party marketplace. So if you're a new user coming onto IMX. You want to probably go to an official feeling marketplace. There is an immutable hosted marketplace, but it's missing critical features like the ability to send NFTs to other wallets in a point and click sort of way, um, a point and click way to um, uh, pull it to mainnet, to take an NFT from immutable X to mainnet to bridge, I should say. Um, and uh, just a few other stats that you might expect on sites like Blur and OpenSea. That lack of an official marketplace can't simply be filled with um, some of the third-party marketplaces that we get pointed to, um, partly because those ones often take a fee to list your project, and that's an inhibitor on the ecosystem's growth. Um, you, you think, like, why did OpenSea get so big? Well, it was because it was free to list, and the documentation was good enough that you know people were able to jump on uh, as small-time folks and create many, many, many projects, which did lead to a lot of junk projects, but it also led to a lot of junk projects that turned into big projects. And it led to a growth of developer knowledge that meant that big projects chose OpenSea originally to, to sort of launch on um, because there was enough dev sort of Docker and discussion out there to work their way through it. Um, so I think maybe Immutable were a little bit slow to, to realize that. You, you do need to support the really, really small tier um, devs. You can't just go for the big sort of white labeling partnerships, your GameStops and such. You do need to make sure that um, like the, the, the path to growth to being a really big platform is actually the small players, not the, the big um, you know, um, showcase sort of partnerships. Uh, so I think like they're, they're probably not yet leaning as much to that side as I would hope. Like I think there's a little more support they can give to the small time devs, uh, first time you know blockchain devs. The doco is still not perfect in that onboarding experience, still some complexities around signatures and that kind of thing. Um, so there's some smoothing out to do. And I think probably polishing off the marketplace would be the, the most impactful thing they could do in the short term. Uh, just to make sure that people could go somewhere they trust. It's associated with the brand. It does all the things they expect a marketplace to do. Uh, and that saves all those small devs time because we're all time poor, right? As smaller projects or smaller studios. Yeah. Not having to build our own freaking marketplace is a huge time saving. So you want to get that right. Mm, that was the first time I've heard of that, uh, that, that there's marketplaces that charge to have you listed. That's um yeah, like token trove, I'm pretty sure it's like one or two ETH last time I looked. 
um, which is like not a huge barrier for like us. We raise sort of a good amount, but for small players, that's a barrier, right? They're going to choose the, the platform that doesn't charge them. Um, that's risk, right? Pre pre funding yeah. and pre sale. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. and and I, I I don't see I don't see anything wrong in what you said either because um, the the reality of the situation is if you make the barrier to to entry for the smaller projects, you know, you have the tools there for them. Those are the ones that are going to keep coming back, right? And build that following. Um, so I, I see what you're talking about. And it, it, I feel that with a global order book, it somewhat, somewhat outweighs it, but you still need to get a, a foot in the door with that, a certain marketplace or two. So. Yeah, no, that's crazy that they charge to list when it's a global order book, and there's other, you know, other marketplaces that just listed your order anyway for free. Yeah, um, so they're, they're charging you for a UI, basically those those yeah. third party marketplaces, and they're only able to do that because Immutable's own UI is just like missing some really not crazy features, right? It's ones they could yeah. definitely do, Great. just haven't been prioritized. Yeah, yeah. I, I, the excuse has been that they don't want to cut the lunch of their you know, their partners because of the global order book that they don't want to make theirs feature rich that makes everyone else useless. So, um, you know, that's the reason why they haven't gone out. I've seen that, heard them say that multiple times that they're not, <laughs> they're making Yeah, feature, but saying that, list. saying that is one thing and, and knowing that it's a glaring issue um, is another yeah. thing, right? Because, um, you know, like when I want to, if I want to swap tokens on IMX, it's you can't now you know like uh they they used to have uh the ability to do that but well you had to buy an nft that represented something right and then swap it but mm. you're just transferring oh. between wallets which is like half the reason people went to OpenSea was just a simplistic interface to see what's in my wallets and transfer between them um yeah. and if you just <laughs> if you incorporate that basic functionality you uh you're gonna get people who are just yeah more a bit more comfortable with the ecosystem because I, I see so many people say they haven't heard of immutable x they come on and they're like i don't know where the marketplace is how do i transfer an nft nft between my wallets and it's like oh yeah. okay well here's this long-winded explanation of how to <laughs> you know that's already a bad user experience we're having to teach like explain to our users how to do things that's not good very good points um i think that was pretty fair and um <laughs> crit crit criticism that's uh you know, fair and what, you know, not, I'm not trying to be, you know, you did it in a nice way is what I'm trying to say. Okay. So we're <laughs> running out of time. We're running yep. out of time so we've got to play our, our game. Like I, you might notice that I play games on Twitter. Um, but this one we play on our pod is we get you to guess what your peak monthly active users will be in your game. And we track it over years. And uh, we also have a guess <laughs> later on and, and um, we will see it come back and and you know, when the game launches and it hits its peak monthly active users, we'll come back and see who was right. So it's a long game, <laughs> but what, a very long game. You... Yeah, sure. <laughs> oh, good. I mean, <laughs> you have like the, the the range, right? People usually give you a range, like a sensible range. So you know, I think we we'd be happy with like a, a 50k. You can in the Web three space actually generate a lot of revenue off 50k. Um, monthly users because the the wallet spend per user is actually a lot higher. Um, but uh, you know, we look at games like V Rising that showed you that a small game that you know mashed up genre as well did all the small things right. 
doesn't need 100 hours of you know content needs maybe just like 50 hours of high quality content we look at a game like that and you know they've got like millions millions of users they probably hit a peak active of a couple hundred thousand um i think that's the target like you can't can't set your sites low so we'll be setting our sites for you know uh let's say 200,000 peak um monthly maybe higher um, and I think uh, I think that's that's achievable with the, with the mix of features we have. We just got to make sure we we do that final polish and and we get the marketing exposure towards the end that's required. So, how much is your peak monthly active user? Uh, you think what's the goal? What's your guess? Sorry, I didn't quite hear it. Uh, let's let let's say uh, peak monthly probably five hundred thousand. Let's see if we can get there. That's a crazy target, but half uh, million. Half a million, yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. I I reckon you're gonna go higher than that. I reckon you'll get hit the at least a million. But I'll think about it and and guess proper later on in the episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> we're very we're very like conservative minded here. We don't like um, make sort of wild predictions. Our community will like have picked up that like after the sort of initial hype phase. We're very just like clinical in our communications and making sure everyone like has a good understanding of like what happens in game development what the time frames are and you know what the the expected growth and that sort of thing is um, without being like financial advisors um just keeping it keeping it real i think that's important to to you know make sure pe people understand like these these games should not be your your day job they they should be a nice upside potentially to playing um but you know it's a it's a play and earn it's not gonna it's not gonna be played to earn most likely uh, for some time until web3 really uh, explodes I'm super excited by the game, mate. Like, honestly, uh, it, once I've started researching it recently, you've seen me do a few tweet, tweets about it. Um, I think um, I've just, like, I love that style, style of game. And, and I've got my Web2 mates lined up to play it. So, you know, they, they hate crypto with a passion, but I've got them the ability to play it. So I told them there's no crypto awesome. tokens. I told them it's no NFTs that I want them. You know, it's just a game. Look at the game. <laughs> Show them a video, and they're keen to play it. So, I think you, you maybe not are realizing what you've hit here. This art style combined with the type of game style is what people are looking for. They're not looking for the dark Diablo style art style. I hate it. I, I literally spent one hundred ten dollars on a game that I hate. So, in you know, I can't, <laughs> wait, I can't wait to play your game. That's that's what we're feeling. Um, we uh, yeah, we like that's why we went there because we're basically we're making a game that we want to play. And sometimes that works really well, like more than any you know huge market survey you can do. If you just have played a lot of games and you're friends and you all sort of have the same vibe, that vision can sometimes be clearer than you know just doing you know a survey of US users or um, Indonesian or Phil's user who it is to sort of shape your game. We've we've gone much more on what's a great what's a great game that would make us make it feel fresh and fun for us, and that means poppier colors. It means a good positive vibe, and it means you know bigger bigger raids, you know ten man raids means lots of classes to play with, lots of races, uh, and some big dilemmas to work out this sort of global mechanic uh, of uh, the different settlements battling it out. So, yeah, it's it's going to be hopefully um, something that, especially those former WoW players who want a more bite-sized, positive, fun experience to jump back into, it should be that. And it being totally opt-in on the crypto side, we can hopefully get all those Web2 folks on board, try it out, slowly convert them. They can see the value of having their character as a token uh, long-term. 
Um, and I do actually have one little sneak peek for you guys to finish, if that's all right. Uh, it's actually a little bit of dialogue. Usually you have a visual sneak peek for these things, but you know, folks can hop on our website and see the gameplay. It looks really good. They can see the visuals. Um, somewhere where we are actually also putting a lot of effort is the, the voice acting and making sure our story, which is deep and it's got some uh, resonance with you know, global issues that folks are experiencing right now. Hoping that comes through. Um, if you're if you're all good with it, I'll play a little clip now, and uh, folks can sort of vibe on that and and think about the game that uh, is going to be. Yeah, perfect. All right, here we go. Promise, progress, power. Kronos and the Forges have taken once modest endeavors to new heights and scales. But as the titans of this industrial age started to roar. A rift began to form in our hearts and in our planet's core. We can't all have it all, is something my mother used to say. No, but we did try. <laughs> I love it. There you go. I, I, a brooding finish to your creator. I'm sitting here looking at the open sea. Uh, adventurers right now i'm looking at one of the one of the cats here that you and i'm i'm just picturing like puss in boots right <laughs> with that that <laughs> voice acting um i love it <laughs> yeah for sure um and uh if you hop on the twitter you can have a look at the character selection with the 3d characters that you'll get in game we will be updating the nft artwork to look as the 3d characters do in game as well so that pixel art style will eventually be fully wiped away um, once every piece of armor is modeled as i said we're committed to converting every little bit of pixel art to a perfect 3d representation mm -hmm. so that'll probably be just another month or so and then you'll see that switch over to the nft artwork to a shiny 3d experience Perfect. Awesome. Just to, just to wrap up, um, I just wanted to say thank you uh, again for c taking the time out of your day to come and talk to us about the game. Um, I'm honestly looking at probably purchasing a couple of these right now because they're so low um, <laughs> on OpenSea. <laughs> but um, honestly, it's been awesome. I'm looking forward to uh, being able to play the game. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, um, definitely hop in, grab some adventurers so you can uh, join in the holders playtest in the, the next week or two. And uh, we'll see you there, you know, hopefully smashing dinos on the head or uh, getting smashed by some big dinos uh, in that playtest and, and having fun. Sounds good. Thank you very much for your time, Lachlan. Uh, we really appreciate it. And, you know, we'll be following the, the release as it comes into the, towards the end of the year. Great. No worries. Thanks very much, guys. And um, yeah, hello to all my uh, immutable family out there. Looking forward to see everything that everyone else develops in the next couple of months as well. Uh, we have another exciting guest to speak to, another immutable employee, which is crowd favorites. Uh, a lot of people are asking to us to interview more people from the immutable team itself. So we've got Steve from the uh, Solutions Engineering team. How are you going, mate? Hey, great to be here. Awesome. Um, let's get straight into it, hey? Um, uh, we're a bit limited for time, so Steve's very busy because of all the games they're winning. Do you want to just go over, you know, give us a bit of a rundown of who you are, um, what led you to Immutable, and what your role is there? That's a lot of questions. You can go on for a while if you like. <laughs> so, yeah, I head up solution engineering for Immutable uh, globally, so we're spread out over the US, EMEA, and APAC. Um, and the solution engineering team, they're, they're really a sort of tech resource that, that's there right at the start of the engagement with every customer. So they're a pre-sales team. So they're the tech person, people that you can speak to before you've actually 
you know, um, settled the contractuals and decided to go with Immutable. And it's largely because when you've got a platform, a really you know large platform like Immutable that has so many different capabilities, and you've got a really massive problem space like Web3, that's really hard to navigate. That's pretty much impossible to navigate unless you can you know get access to some developers, some people who can can get right down into the weeds. Um, and that's largely what our team does. So we work with the sales team, um, and we're there right from the start all the way through to the end of that process. Um, and we help the studios map game mechanics to Web3 outcomes, uh, make sure they're able to get the best out of the platform, and kind of go down whatever rabbit hole it is they want to go down. Um, so we can talk to any topic, whether it's you know something very crypto-specific or whether it's more gameplay mechanisms that we're talking about. Sweet. So, so you get to you get to see these uh, these games, these projects uh, come to you, and and you get to direct them down. Hey, this is when you want to do the crafting or something like that in in the game. This is how you're going to be able to do it and provide the solutions for these projects to kind of usher in uh, the ease of use and stuff for them. Yeah, and we're we're also probably the first point where. They'll get like a bit of pushback. So a lot of the time, if they're the other option that you've got in market is a build-it-yourself approach. So really, it's kind of buy versus build. We're the buy option, and then build would be, you know, you go out there and you pick a chain, and then you pick your wallet, and then you pick your marketplace, then you pick your indexer, and you kind of piecemeal all the pieces together. And if you talk to, you know, any one component, that really narrows what you're discussing. And so if you say, if you pitch them a particular idea, they'll go, yeah, we can accommodate it in this way. But once, you know, you get, you're trying to solve the whole problem, you're at that platform level, then often what we're doing is throwing cold water on, on ideas and saying, well, you know, I know that that's really big on crypto Twitter right now, but have you thought about, you know, the much more super important parts of this, which is the game itself, the gameplay, you know, the, the players, um, so I think it is a very different experience a lot of the time talking to us in that we we don't just say, yeah, we'll accommodate anything. anything. We often kind of challenge a lot of those assumptions that they're coming with as well. Oh, cool. So it's for the audience that might not be aware of what a pre-sales role is in a tech product. Um, you, you, you come into the picture after sales or... No, 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 we come in right at the same time. So the sales team and the solution engineers are both coming in as a pair. Um, and this is, the, our sales team is mainly focused on this, the larger end of, of the deal. So we're talking large, uh, often um, pre-existing, you know, game industry, game studios um, with big teams, large funding. It's, it's sort of at that size. For the smaller teams, then that may just be one person. Um, but that also might be they're coming in through the website. So if you go to hub.immutable.com, you can directly get access to the product. Um, so if you're talking to us, you're usually talking to us because you're a large studio and you've got a developer team who's got a ton of questions and they, they need to start working through problems. Mm. Gotcha. It's different to what I thought. So, so it's, it's actually, you know, depending on the need of the, of the, of the organization is, is when you get involved. That's quite interesting. Um, what do you, what do you uh, like about the job? <laughs> you know, what, what's what's the part you really enjoy? Oh, it's the best job in the world. I mean, hands down. <laughs> it, <laughs> really? <laughs> I, yeah, yeah. I, I I love it. It's so the great thing that um, 
solution engineering allows you to do is chop and change constantly. You know, you're able to talk to such a diverse number of companies and organizations. You're able to tackle all the, the, the problems right at the most interesting point when you're still kind of trying to brainstorm how you're going to solve them. Um, and then you just move on to the next one. So, you know, the, the tough thing often as a developer is the fun bit is at the start, or the fun bit for me was always at the start when we were brainstorming and architecting it. And then when it got down to the grunt work of, you know, writing the code, I often started to lose interest, um, especially after the first 10 years of being a developer. And solution engineering is just wonderful for that. You're just going from problem to problem and you don't have to be there banging your head against the door, you know, against a Node.js update or something like that. Um, so it's a, it's a fantastic job. And then to be able to combine that with gaming and Web3, it couldn't get any better. Cool. Awesome. Um, did you have a back? Oh, do you want to go? go ahead. Uh, did you have a, like so a, ga- a background in gaming development, or was it just a, a normal normie dev? No, no, I, I wouldn't dare claim that. So I think that's one thing that you quickly learn about the game industry is they have a real strong pride of you know they have been in the trenches, they've been in the games industry. Now I'm a gamer. I'm I'm a huge gamer. Have been my whole life. Um, you know, really struggled with a world of World of Warcraft addiction in my twenties. Um, <laughs> Who didn't? <laughs> I uh, and I still am a big gamer today as well. As much as as much as it's struggled to find the time when you've got kids, so I'm, I'm really passionate about the game industry. But as a gamer, not I, I kind of always acknowledge that I'm not from the industry itself. Yeah, so I kind of I kind of noticed that in like your hey meeting it head on and saying like hey it. Yeah, say a, a game wants to do something just for the sake of, of doing it and, and you kind of meet it head on and, and say, but why? How does that help the game mechanic and what is it actually doing for gameplay, right? So that that was an interesting, you know, way, unique way to look at it too, especially for uh, from the, the eyes of a gamer. Yeah, and it, it's also about trying to think about a gamer who is interested and excited about the idea of owning property or owning property that exists in game worlds um i think the the thing that has yet to be decided in web3 and we'll we'll see which way it goes is whether or not the most successful approach is simply mapping pre-existing approaches like the sort of loops that we see in free-to-play games to their tokenized equivalents or if it's much more like premium property. So if you look at a game like Star Citizen, where they were pre-Web3 selling you know, individual spaceships for hundreds of dollars, we could see that approach. Um, and typically studios will come with one or the other. They'll lean one way, you know, on that spectrum, they'll be in one direction or the other. And it's off, often the discussion is about challenging them with the opposing, sort of being the devil's advocate and saying, to the team, for example, who's really seeing this as, as premium property, hey, have you thought about the way that tokens, you know, ERC-20 tokens could fit into this? And for those coming with, you know, very kind of almost Axie Infinity style complex flows where you've got multiple token types and the tokens interact with different things, saying, well, have you thought of simplifying this and just treating it like they're a consumer and you're producing products and you're just selling them those products? Yeah. Absolutely. Very, very interesting how this turns out in the end. Um, you know, I think the my biggest um, thing that I think about that people 
I don't see people talking about is the player motivation. So when when does so for example, Gods Unchained and Axie Infinity. I make when I play Gods Unchained because I'm bad about a dollar a day. Um, when I played Axie Infinity, I was making sometimes forty, fifty dollars a day. I've never ever sold a Gods Unchained token for cash, but I, I definitely did that for Axie Infinity. What point does my motivation change from playing Gods Unchained for fun to playing it for money? What dollar do I have to earn per day before that converts over? And when that point happens, the that Gods Unchained economy instantly becomes unsustainable. So there's this tipping point, like a scales kind of effect of player motivation determining the outcome of the economy. What do you think about that comment? You can buy the market. And you, you see this, you know, you see this all the time right now. In fact, it, always for us in the market at any given time, there'll be a point solution, for example, that will, whether it's a chain or a wallet, they'll have a large amount of funds and they'll be trying to buy the customers. And it's, it's not sustainable for them. With a lot of the play to earn mechanics, um, it was the same thing. It was ultimately, you know, VC money that was trying to buy a user base. It's as simple as that. And so if, if that's your approach, you have to acknowledge it's only ever going to be a short-term uh, thing. Unless you have infinite money somehow, then you're always eventually going to run up against the economic reality that that's not scalable. I think with Web3 Gaming, there is going to be the crypto native portion will always kind of be mo the most motivated by, by that return um, or even thinking about it in terms of return on investment. But I think for this to get into the mainstream gamer uh, audience, which is ultimately, you know, that's the, the, the prize. That's the big addressable market. Um, that's the difference between the billion players that are out there and the very big question mark around how many actual crypto native players there are. Um, for them, you can look to other things as to what the motives are. And those other things would be, you know, any kind of, uh, anything you could buy at a board game shop, whether it's the board games themselves, whether it's, you know, 40K miniatures, whether it's uh, Magic the Gathering cards. Um, you can also see this in video game stores. In all of these places, you have already these loops of players going in, buying desirable products, trying them out, playing around with them, coming back in, trading them in, and buying something else. And that whole cycle of, of buying in, trying out, trading in that happens without them making profit. They're, they're constantly putting money into those hobbies and that entertainment as something they find enjoyable. But the fact that in that process, they are owning things, it's their property and they have property rights over it, that actually enhances how much they enjoy it. Um, and the games industry hasn't not provided that because they're, you know, you know there's some Machiavellian... Uh, you know, executive rubbing their hands together. They've just not had the technology. They've not been able to offer players property until now. Um, and now they have that technology. So the, the possibilities of that are limitless in the same way that a company, let's say you had a theme park that was running all these rides and they weren't able to sell anything to the people that were in the theme park. Suddenly they realized they can sell them popcorn and, you know, stuffed toys. What else they could sell them, the things they could sell them is effectively unlimited. There's so many different options they can do. But at no point in that exchange do people walk away thinking of them as investment vehicles. That's a, that's a very big point, right? Um, seeing that, you know, how to bridge that gap between um, 
playing because it's a it's a fun game and rather than that financial incentive to do so and at what point would any financial incentive to play even be sustainable right and being on top of that and being in the trenches if you will like what's you know what have been some of your most difficult you know ones to try to navigate i i think this is where a lot of the time the kind of the people trying to replicate axie infinity are the ones that were the if you're really at the extreme end of that those are the ones where we kind of have to talk you down from that because it is a mathematical impossibility um you can't, you know, distribute funds out to, out to players greater than the amount of funds going in. It's perfectly fine to move money around between players. So if you have a pool of players players that are trading back and forth with each other, and the money accrues, you know, at a small minority of them, that's fine as long as that is a fair market where people are okay with that. So whether that's because it's competitive and it's tournament based, or because it's you know, you're trading and there's a meta game that's changing the price of those items over time. And that there's heaps of ways in which you can have these effects still occur and they're in a fair way. But anytime you have a model where, you know, you're just taking funds from the new players and giving them to the, to the old players, we already have a name for that. You know? <laughs> it's already a name for that model. It's a Ponzi scheme. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean... The other interesting thing about Ponzi schemes is that they don't really have room in the market for more than one. So the question that I've asked everyone when this topic's being discussed is, who is, this, who is second place to Axie Infinity? Mm. Peg Axie probably, wouldn't it? Or Krabada, which was a, was it not even 2% of what... Yeah, Axie I don't even... Yeah, if it was even that close. I think it was, I think it was, I think it was Krabada and they did 200 million. Um, I, so compared to you, 4 billion... I'll put you in the, the top 1% because I've literally asked that question well over 100 times now. And I would, I would confidently say that it'd be about 1% of people have any answer, even a guess. Yeah. Those people have no idea who the number two was because that's how Ponzi schemes operate. There's room in the market for one, and then they just suck all the oxygen out of the room. There's no ability to sustain another one. Whereas what we know is that the games industry can absolutely you know, have a, a vast number of games and is better for it. You know, the more games that are that are coming in, the bigger that pie grows. And so one thing that I think people get quite sort of worried about is as these mainstream games come in, what's that going to do to the, the sort of more degen end of the market? And if you're looking only at the sort of the size of the pie in percentage terms, then it will look like that's shrinking. And in fact, I think it'll shrink to pretty much about the same size of the indie market that we see in gaming right now. But if you look at the size of the pie, so it's a much overall smaller percentage, but of a much, much bigger pie, then that's where you see the benefits. That, yeah, this mean, does... I, I, want to, I want to support what you said as well from an observation I've made a couple of times. Um, Axie Infinity, its, its point of cliff was... You know, its peak was about eight months or after the first rise, six or seven months it lasted, and then it went off the cliff. Krabata was about two months after it was released. It went off a cliff. Pagaxi was about a, a month after it went after, after, after it was, you know, had mass adoption. And then Crypto Unicorns, which I'm involved in, 
its peak was before the game released, a couple of days before. They, now, their game isn't really a complete night of Ponzi. If you play forever, it, it might be if they don't add any more content, but they're constantly building and adding content. But my point was people were playing it because they thought it was a you know going to be that money stream. And people are learning that these things don't last and it's getting shorter and shorter time frames before for how long they last for. If you get what I'm trying to say. Uh, absolutely. And and that whole that whole sort of early phase of web3 gaming um I think it'll be a bit of a shock to that community how much that is not it doesn't have this huge sort of influence on the gaming industry's sort of use of this technology. They're going to come in and and really be speaking to and marketing to the the mainstream gamer. And the focus will be just on property. Here is this interesting bit of property we've got for you that we think you'll find desirable. Um, and because it is backed by you know uh, the blockchain, it is actually your property in a very literal sense. Um, I think that is ultimately the thing that will appeal. A lot of the complexity around you know the the trading systems and having multiple tokens and so on. I, I don't think it'll it'll kind of appeal to the, those wider gamer audiences. <clears throat> one thing that I, I did notice is that like um <clears throat> for like a traditional game like call of duty it's carrying over for the for the next release your items your in-game items will still be there for like the first time ever like for the the upcoming release so like i think um mainstream gaming is catching on to the fact that like a lot of these gamers are like they they put in so many hours to unlock these skins and they just have to redo it the next time around, which is part of the grind that a lot of these gamers do it for. But they're they're starting to catch on to that. Uh, they like these unlocked things that they've gotten. It it is very. I mean, that is definitely. I would hope that is definitely them responding to Web three. I think it's very similar to crypto at large, where you saw sort of TradFi start to kind of get their house in order because they could see how far ahead crypto was in some areas and they were they kicked those processes off they were making those improvements before crypto had really properly came into the mainstream market i'm seeing a couple of things that i'm, I'm seeing where i'm like uh, maybe this is them responding to web3 so that's a great example of of you know assistance across games because that's going to be a huge you know value of web3 but i'm also seeing this with you know, some of the companies in the game industry attempting to offer, you know, there, there is one I know of right now that is trying to do uh, NFTs without blockchain. So they say, well, you know, we're a trusted brand, so you can run all of your digital assets on our, uh, you know, I think they're probably just using some sort of big data backend like Kafka or something. You know, you can run it all on this traditional system and we'll look after all of that and you can trust us and you don't need to worry about any of this blockchain stuff. And where you end up with is you basically have got something that's no different to the Steam marketplace. Um, we already have that in market. We already see how far that, that can go. Um, so it is going to be interesting. We're going to see the game industry kind of react to this. But those kind of reactions, those counter reactions, I, you know, they're going to have no hope. That, that will be very hard to kind of keep make that go mainstream when you've got Web3 coming in. Mm. I want to uh, change ta uh, direction again back to the role, and I just because I had this thought 
you talked about how you know it's the most wonderful job in the role in the world and you love it and because of what you do how did the recent zk evm announcement change your role and what was the result can you talk about that you know the impact of that on your role well it was yesterday <laughs> so <laughs> what you haven't had time to absorb it yet <laughs> No, but you've been talking the, the, to, like, to clients about ZKE. Yeah, you've signed, yeah, signed yeah. 20 people. <laughs> so I'm, I'm only joking. Look, we've, we've okay. been lucky to be able to have access to, to all of that. And we, we're really tight with the product team as well. So we've been across it. And it, it has changed our role massively because a year ago, we were out there in market with a ZK Rollup, which was an application-specific one. So it only did... The minting and trading of assets. That's that's all it did. It didn't have the ability to support arbitrary smart contracts. And there are some benefits to that. You know, the big benefits still are that it is incredibly scalable, much more scalable than a normal type of, of uh, you know, full blockchain roll-up. And that we can, because it's so predictable, we can make it gas-free because we know exactly what the cost per, per mint and per trade is going to be. So now that we have a foot, the smart contract capabilities as well, then a lot of what in the past we'd have to say no to or we'd have to solve with a trusted solution, trusted solutions being the most common approach, um, now it's a case of, well, yeah, you can use a smart contract to do that. And um, so it's made the role a lot more complex. And I think for myself and a lot of the team, it means that we're really going to have to brush up on those solidity skills and a lot of those core blockchain skills because up until now a lot of the conversations have purely been around you know how do i do this only at the api level um you can still do everything at the api level with zk evm but yeah again you've got those smart contracts there now as well yeah I, we talked about this api in our latest pod or it was actually it was in the um the uh, twitter spaces we did or the x spaces we did just to dedicated to ZKVM. So if people yeah. don't know what APIs are on that, you can go and, and listen to that to catch up on it. But um, yeah, I thought that ZKVM is going to change the role like pretty much completely. You know, like the conversations are, you know, this is this is how you'd have to get around that point. But now it's like, here's, so here's the, every solution you need is available now. Which one do you need? Um, and, you know, this is what we know and how we can suggest you use this platform. One quick question as well on to is in, including that is can customers integrate both Stark X and Polygon ZKVMs solutions into their one game or is it not advised or not capable or not available? Not advised. Capable but not advised. For for now what we're saying to everyone is look uh, expect to see a lot of our focus being on uh ZKEVM and getting that bedded in and rolled out. Um, we will revisit how we can blend the two together. Um, but today, right, even right at the start of your kind of developer journey, we say pick a path and, and stick to it because we know that you're going to run into a lot of things that we're not going to have a solution for you right out of the gate. Um, and we'd rather you just kind of pick one environment, double down, stick on that. And then that way, also when you're looking from the documentation standpoint, you, it's clearly spelled out, okay, here are the constraints and here's how it behaves. Um, so yeah, look, you can use a blended model, um, but we would we would kind of stress to people to if to make your life simpler, pick one and stick to it. And for most people, I think it is increasingly going to be the zk EVM environment that they'll be using. Yeah, yeah. When you have that scalability um, with all of the security as well, and being able to take it and 
use the customized uh, smart contracts. There, there really is no reason not to. And then also, the the actual gas fees being minimal as well, being <clears throat> layer two. So, um, amazing stuff. I'm I'm super excited to see what's to come. What what's one of your uh, so far one of your biggest challenges other than you know uh, telling people no when they want to just do anything they want. <laughs> uh, well, one of the more interesting challenges is having to explain to game studios who don't want to use smart contracts why this is exciting. There you that's go. A, that's a that's conversation. A, yeah. And and so we we wrote a whole blog post about this as well, talking about you know um, how how smart contracts really change the nature of what's possible. Um, and there's two ways There's two ways that I like to frame this for game studios who are not crypto natives at all. One is that smart contracts allow you to, with, with every NFT that we're using, um, and you'll notice that I, I use the term NFT pretty rarely. I tend to use, say, digital asset for pure branding reasons. Um, but for every digital asset, you've, you've got to have utility. Um, associated with it so the big sort of reason why a lot of the kind of activity we saw in the pfp ecosystem fell apart or didn't really go far beyond kind of being a type of altcoin speculation was they were nfts without any utility um they were and if they had utility it was no further than it just had an image attached to it so that's a pretty low value um very easy to produce and produce it at massive scale and there's not really much benefit to it whereas with everything we're dealing with everything has utility has it has something that makes that asset valuable and the great thing and exciting thing about zkebm is that the types of utility you can now create will last forever they're forever utility so in god's own chain running on immutable x you can buy trade mint the uh cards but you can't craft on Immutable X without it being a trusted solution. So if we fast forward 200 years in time, and sadly 200 years in the future, Gods Unchained is no longer running, um, which it'll never happen. Gods Unchained is a forever property. It's going to be running in 200 years' time. But assuming that the multiplayer server is shut confidence. down, it's confidence, I know. <laughs> you know, that, you know that. I am 100% certain that Gods Unchained will still be running in 200 years' time. But pretending that it isn't and those multiplayer servers are down and it's gone you've got still a collectible and it still has the ability to uh, burn it to trade it and so on but the crafting no longer works you know that that's gone that was a trusted solution you move over to uh, smart contracts and now all a lot of that functionality becomes forever functionality it will work forever and that's really where the excitement comes from for on-chain gameplay which is still very much kind of a far future thing. Um, for now, that's main, mainly indie. So that is a really kind of uh, sort of high concept piece. And for the game studios, that's interesting. But obviously, you're kind of talking about, you know, reasons why the players will be excited in the event that they disappeared. So that's that's in itself is not, you know, a huge appeal. The second then is much more of an appeal. And this is, is about the quality of the asset is... A lot more of that functionality is ceases to be trusted solutions. So with the crafting flow in Immutable X, you have to put the cards into an escrow wallet. They check the contents of that wallet using a back-end server, and then they call an API to mint the new 
you know, the new card into your wallet. And that whole setup there relies on that server being a trusted authority to do all that for you. It is much, much more, you know, it's much safer and much more in the consumer's interest to have all that on the blockchain. Yeah, all of that being a smart contract so that it's verifiable there with others to see and and verify themselves too. Exactly. And, And that makes for a higher quality asset. That is a better asset doing it that way than it is where you've got that trusted setup. So this leads me to a question about the ZK EVM changes the gas fees. So one of the major reasons I got behind Immutable was like gas free. I can see the ability to make a frictionless experience for gamers. ZK EVM introduces gas fees and therefore potentially more friction for gamers. How do you see that playing out? And, you know, do you agree that the gas fees could be a bit of an issue with mass adoption and how are you approaching it as a salesperson when having conversations with, with these ga- uh, games developers, companies? Yeah, uh, it's just the nature of, of it being a very different type of roll-up. Um, you know, with, with any kind of uh, blockchain solution, you've really kind of only got two mechanisms to support, to, to stop, um, you know, DDoS attacks. You can either have it as an application-specific rollup where you access it purely through APIs, and then your way of preventing DDoS attacks is the same you do with all APIs. So you have API gateways that block, you know, someone trying to spam the network. And so that's a huge advantage to application-specific rollups. But in the world of, you know, blockchains where you've got full smart contract functionality, they already have a recognized mechanism to do this, which is gas. Gas is the way that they prevent DDoS attacks because you are paying for every, you know, for every attack that you're doing. And it just it very quickly ceases to make sense. And that has been pretty effective. You know, there are still gas spikes, but that's very different to someone actively trying to, you know, slam the network with pointless messages. Um, so gas is necessary. You know, the reason why an application-specific rollup allows you to sidestep it is because it just limits, constrains what you can do it to do on it to a very predictable set of um, functions. And then we can estimate, okay, this is what it's going to cost us to run. And so we can then offset that and then make it gas-free for everyone. So that's when we talk to the studios, we don't kind of mince words. We don't kind of promise something that's not there. We just explain it. This is the nature of of these roll-ups. The more interesting question is the one you said about, you know, what is the impact of the gamer? And that's something that we have to solve for. And that's, that's not something that we've just left unsolved. So yes, we've brought gas back. But we've also then, in the time, in the years since Immutable X launched, we have now got solutions for what the impact of the gamer is. So the biggest one is Passport. And you'll often hear Passport referred to as a wallet, but that's probably a bit unfair. Passport's much broader than that. Think of Passport as your whole end consumer experience. Let me let me so jump in pop- there because I literally just got out of um, a user experience ux uh, research for the passport and it is it's not fair to call it just a, a wallet because it's is way more and at at the end of the interview i was like i actually said those words i'm like you can't actually call it a wallet but it is a wallet and i was sitting there like kind of dumbfounded so yeah it's better to say it contains wallets it has wallets under the hood as part of, of part of the solution exactly but the goal the goal with the long-term goal with Passport is to make it so that a gamer with no awareness of blockchain is able to come in and safely buy, trade, 
um, and use digital assets, digital goods that they purchase. And it's also not intended to be a general purpose wallet. So you can't just take it and go onto Uniswap and make trades. If you want to do that, we can link uh, other wallets to Passport and you can, you know, exit funds out to your MetaMask and then you can go back out um, wherever you want from there. So we never compromise ownership. We never compromise on decentralization. These are all ultimately the kind of hard requirements that we have. But we do make the user experience, the baseline experience, as smooth and as easy as possible. Um, and that's what Passport is and all of its components is there to solve for. And so one of the components in Passport is a gas relay. So coming back to the original question of how do we, have, if, if we're going to have, reintroduce gas, how do we not impact the gamers? Um, one of the, be the easiest ways to do this is to centralize all the gas costs um, and then have the studio pay for them. Most of those gas costs are going to be um, pretty, pretty minor anyway. So they can centralize the gas, they'll cover it um, themselves for all of their assets, and then you end back up with something that's effectively gas-free. Um, that's one option. The other option is that you uh, transfer a certain amount of IMX tokens to each user, and um, they then just have that there uh, available to pay gas costs as, as they come up. That's the other approach. How do you prevent the, uh, you know, the ex exploitation of that? You know, people making bots making mass wallets, mass accounts on games, and then just burning all that gas for, for free. Yeah, that's why the relayer is probably going to be the better the better option uh, for for a while. Um, the problem of bots is probably something we'll tackle next year. Uh, so there is a there is a civil resistance problem that we'll have to tackle, and there are ways for us to do that today with partners. But I think increasingly we'll bake that into um, Passport as well. Absolutely. Well, um, honestly, I'm just sitting here in awe of like, honestly, the guy has an answer to everything and it, it makes sense that he is a solutions engineer. <laughs> and the manager of the team. Dude, I heard that D'Souza is looking for a, a job in Web3 and he's an engineer, so uh, maybe we can, you can line up later hey. on. Hey, look, you know, I'm, I'm, you give me a call. If you speak Mandarin, I'm, I'm hiring. <laughs> Ni hao. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, that's, that's all uh, that's all i need to hear yep we're gonna send it through, <laughs> send it in and through. um we, i know you got a bit of a hard stop soon steve so uh, you know we did want to ask a question about you know what's your favorite thing about immutable what's something that immutable you couldn't do could do better it's so favorite thing about immutable I, I kind of covered this before working in the intersection of video games and blockchain i'm i'm the luckiest guy like this i can't imagine anywhere more enjoyable um and more you know you're, you're right at the bleeding edge you have so much ability to influence the direction way the way things are going um it's it's incredibly exciting um you know i'm off to gamescom next week so you know there's the ability to go to the video game industry conferences as a gamer like i'm i'm as happy as anything and then i'm going to give a really annoying answer to the one of what i would change um which is i i don't have that as a as a day-to-day -day problem at immutable so you know i've worked in mainly big corporates that's where you that's where solution engineers come from that's where the practice comes from it's you know salesforce started it and then all the other big tech companies added that function to their sales organization. 
And there are a million and one different things I would change at those companies and that I would, you know, have on a wish list because there'd be no way to actually have that influence. Immutable is still in that startup phase, that startup type phase where, and it also has hired for a type of person where you can literally jump into anyone's calendar and hop on a call and say, hey, I, you know, I think this is going to be a problem or heads up, this is the issue we've got. And so the ability to change and influence is unlimited here. You, you really do not, shouldn't be running into that as a, as a problem that you've got, that you've got something on a list, a secret wish list of things you'd like to change, because you just can literally pick up the line, the call and call anyone. Um, and that goes all the way to the top as well. Like I'll, I'll corner Robbie and James and Alex at various points and dump on them some problem or th thoughts that I had, and that's always well received. Um, so I know that's a bit of a pat answer to have nothing but praise, but it is really quite honest. I, I don't have like a long list of outstanding issues that I often think of. So you, you being a gamer yourself, um, of, of some of the upcoming games, what has you most excited? I'm really excited about, uh, just of late, I, so I've been, I've kind of cycled through all of them. So what's really interesting about what we're doing is there's a real cold start problem in Web3. So a lot of the approaches taken, maybe they'll have something that has, you know, a platform that's gamer facing. I, I don't think there are actually many that truly are. But of those that are in that state, they don't have and never will have many games. Like they're, they're kind of trying to kickstart the whole process with maybe two, two sort of, you know, A, AA sized games. Um, and the thing that Immutable do has done is we've got this studio arm and we have five games that are all about to kind of go into open beta at the end of this year and then actually go live all about the same time around the sort of one third of the way into next year. Um, and that's going to be incredibly exciting because that is where we're going to have all these players coming in and they're not going to be able to have just one experience. They're then going to be able to cycle through and try all the games and all of that benefits every other game and gamer that enters the ecosystem. So I've kind of gone through every single one of these studio games at various points and swapped my favorite. So I, I was obsessed with Metalcore and then I was obsessed with Shardbound. And I think just recently the one that has um, really jumped to the top for me is Guild of Guardians. They recently did their beautiful corner playtest. Yeah. And they previously, you know, they had a... Uh, Kind of a you know dungeon crawler that um, was good, but it it wasn't grabbing me. It wasn't certainly wasn't my favorite game type. But they've no, now swapped it out. For... <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I gave feedback pretty critical of it. <laughs> it was in a rough state, I, but it was in an early state. Like I should be really clear when I was looking at it. I was looking at it really pre-alpha, super super early. So I don't want to put the the GOG team down in that sense. But they've recently retooled it so it is a roguelike, and I'm obsessed with roguelikes. I love roguelike games. Um, so I think I'm really excited about that. I'm really keen to see a roguelike game in Web3 as well. And also the other exciting thing about GOG is it is mobile, and that is a whole step order function in terms of complexity again. You know, getting Passport into a mobile game and making it so that that experience is seamless, that is, that's the real hard problem. And... GOG is going to be leading the charge on the mobile front as well. Yeah, I'll have to agree on that one. Um, actually, uh, Rubik and I were uh, fortunate enough to be participants in that as well. <clears throat> so that, that beautiful corner demo was amazing. So uh, definitely looking forward to that. Amazing. Well, 
that's uh, we're getting up to our uh, end time now. Steve, is there anything you want to add that we haven't covered or what we said we're going to cover that we didn't? No, no, I don't. Um, I don't have anything else top of my. I know that, that I know that's a terrible answer. I probably should have had something prepared. <laughs> you covered everything. You're good. Great interviewers. We've got it all covered. Yeah. No. Um. <laughs> it's been a pleasure having you, man. Um. Really appreciate your time and and um. You know, depth of knowledge to share with us. Um, looking forward to the future and hope to have you on again sometime in the in the you know next year or so and and show us how how tell us how everything's going and um you know it's only one more year of the 199 more years that god's and chain needs to be around so you know we got to have a yearly checkup (laughs) look i'll I'll hijack that and i'll make that my (laughs) final which is you know everyone is always saying oh you know everything is always in the future it's always far out that is that is not the case with web3 gaming we're we're about to see all of these games hit uh, they're all kind of launching at around about the same time it's sort of starting now and then really picking up steam and then i think we'll really be able to look at and evaluate web3 gaming as an experience by midway through next year and that is true in a way that has not been true at any other point uh previously um it is a real you know, there's been this this real kind of massive investment by the games industry in this technology and the idea of letting players own game items as legal property. Um, and we're now going to be able to see that far beyond the kind of indie game attempts that have happened up till now. I agree. I agree with you. Um, again, thank you so much. Rubik, you got anything else? That's all, brother. All right. I'm all good. Sounds good. Appreciate it. it. Thanks for your time, Steve. Thank you guys uh, so much for listening. Uh, Just wanted to give a little update that next week's episode, we're going to have a special guest, Robbie Ferguson himself, CEO and founder of Immutable X, will be joining us to talk about all things Immutable and ZKEVM rollout. (laughs) 